This call is being recorded. Hey everyone, it's uh, David Barnett from davidcbarnett.com, the YouTube channel, blog site, iTunes podcast, where I talk to people about buying, selling, managing, financing, small and medium-sized businesses. And this is this is the, the first recording of the holiday chat series that I promoted to my email list, inviting people to, to register themselves and, and not just register themselves to have a call with me, but to register themselves to pay to have a call with me. And, and it's really important. And, and, you know, we've got Paul on the line here, but you know, Paul, I'll ask you just to bear with me because I want to explain a little bit some of the logic behind this, this thing that I've been, that I've put up. Um, I do a lot of calls one-on-one on a platform called clarity.fm. And it's, it's a place where people call in and you give advice on the phone and people pay by the minute. Okay. And, and the, the guy right now I'm on clarity and I, I probably talk to people two or three times a week on that platform. And when I talk with them, they come to the call and I say, what do you want to get out of this call? And they say, this is what I want to get out of this call. And they're very organized and they have their thoughts together and, and they're, they're on point because they're trying to get value from the money that they're paying me to talk on the phone. Now, the guy who created Clarity lives in my hometown, and I know him, and I run into him from time to time. And uh, his name's Dan Martell. And he is uh, out there talking and coaching entrepreneurs who are building software as a service platforms. That's his area of expertise. And I ran into him a couple of weeks ago, and he actually is traveling a lot now with a videographer and they're making a lot of video content. He's talking to people, interviewing people, et cetera. And he tried to do this thing where he was offering free sit-down interviews to help people build their business as long as he could put the recordings up. And, and what he told me, this is very interesting, um, is that the interviews all were, were almost entirely all terrible. And he said people would come to the meetings and he would give them suggestions and they would argue with them. And they, they were disorganized and they didn't know what they wanted to talk about. And, uh, and I said, Dan, I said, it's because they've got no investment. They've got no skin in the game. So, so I decided I would try to do this. And uh, basically what I, what I offered in the holiday chat promotion was that I would just take 75% off my regular rate. People could talk to me about whatever they wanted to, but it was going to be released publicly. And so we've got Paul Hin- Hindelang, is that how you pronounce it, Paul? That's correct. Paul Hindelang on the line. And uh, this is the first recording. And Paul actually works in the field of helping people improve and sell their businesses. So, so he's done some M&A work. Um, Paul, why don't we start? Why don't you explain to me some of the things that you typically do with your clients and what your typical clients look like as far as the size of their business, et cetera? Certainly, the uh, the work that I do uh, really is a derivative or flowed from my work in consulting and training. Uh, I have uh, owned a uh, consulting company since 1983, and we have done extensive amount of automotive uh, related at every level of the automotive chain, uh, consulting, quality, logistics, manufacturing processes. And uh, as a result of that, from time to time, some of those clients uh, need advice on uh, acquiring businesses or selling their business or getting into different aspects of of the supply chain. So uh, from those relationships, uh, in addition to a relationship that I have going back to my college days, a friend of mine that it's been doing business brokering mergers acquisitions for some 40 years. Uh, I have uh, put my toe, if you may, into the water of uh, buying and selling businesses uh, with uh, other people in joint ventures and uh, consulting on the same uh, enlisting businesses uh, for sale in this area. Uh, okay, and a couple and you're of the ones Michigan. that I'm currently you're in Michigan, yes, so I'm this Michigan. is where the the automotive ties in, right? So, so as we know that you know the big auto manufacturers are there, but then surrounding them, you've got 
many layers of other suppliers and manufacturers that are all tied together in these these quite complex value chains, correct? That's exactly right, David. Uh, the Everybody thinks of Detroit area as automotive or Michigan as strictly automotive, and they immediately think of only the the big car companies. But fundamentally, all the wealth that has been built over the last 100 years in the automotive industry uh, isn't just at the top level, the, the big major companies. It's all these other integrated manufacturers, suppliers, support services, processing services, legal services, accounting services, uh, every kind of business you can imagine that has grown up and it has a reliance, if you may, on that economic food chain from the automotive industry. But each and every one of them have diversified into other businesses. They, they're working in automotive, uh, they're working in uh, uh, just general uh, manufacturing, like uh, Whirlpool appliances, uh, any kind of other manufactured product, because they have technology and they have tooling and expertise that could spread. So these folks are maybe largely automotive driven, but have breadths of experience that extend into other industries. So what would be sort of the average sales level of some of the companies you've been working with in the in the consulting uh, in the consulting field since since the 80s? I would say anywhere from uh, a million to 50 million okay. uh, is the normal size of client that I'm working with. Uh, and would most of those business work- would most of those companies have a an, a principal who is active in the management? Yes, like they a, do. Yeah, the owner is there in charge every day. Okay. Because in, in my experience, once you get up to a point of about, you know, the mid, um, you know, the, the mid 10 figures, like about $50 million, that's the point where you start to see a separation where you have ownership being different from management, you know, the, the professional managers. And so you've largely worked with, with people where the owner's been present. That that's correct. Uh, most to, to your point, when they get to the fifty million area, they are usually looking for uh, equity, and uh, they'll get other capital investors. Uh, they will start scaling from there to try to become one of the big mid market players to go from fifty million to five hundred million. And now we have the complexities of of. Uh, investors, uh, equity capital people, professional managers, et cetera, et cetera, instead of the entrepreneur manager with his or her advisors. And that's the area that I usually work in. Okay. So prior to the call, you sent over um, some some financial information about a metal manufacturing company. And and of course, you know, businesses for sale. It's confidential, so we're we're not going to identify who these people are. But it's it's a it's a bit of a challenged company. Um, do you want to give a, a brief synopsis to everyone who's going to be listening as to what what these numbers look like? Yes, uh, this is a company uh, that uh, has been in business for uh, I think fifty years. It was started by a uh, let's call it a grandfather generation, and now there is a grandson that is uh, part of the business. Uh, But the last 25 years, it has been run by the grandson's parents until one of them deceased uh, a couple of years ago. And so in one level, it's the classic family-owned business uh, that has provided a lifestyle uh, for 50 years and created out of the vision of the grandfather and run by the uh, uh, family uh, after his passing. And in the last four years, uh, they unfortunately have, uh, uh, once the uh, the husband in this case passed away about three years ago. 
it's been on more of a downtrend. And so they've gone from uh, 2012, about a $1.3 million company to now about an $800,000 gross sales company. And uh, the challenge uh, has been is how do you replace uh, the one uh, critical driver owner and then the spouse who's remaining running the business with other professionals uh, has lost interest and now wants to sell it. Uh, my take on it and looking at it is they may have been well advised to sell it three years ago or four years ago, right at, after the, the passing. But as with most family-owned businesses, they attempt to hold on and, and do the best they can with it. Now, in the, numbers, in the numbers you had sent me, um, you know, you, you, and, there, and these are basic, that's not full profit and loss statements or anything, but we've got a gross profit figure and then there's an operating expense figure and then there's the officer slash other salary. So would there be people that are on the payroll here that actually are not active in the business? No, uh, the people that are on the payroll were all active in the business. In the, in the years since the passing of the, uh, uh, the one principal, they hired some quote unquote professional managers and professional salespeople to come in and supposedly uh, help them run and develop. So I think the, uh, not think, I know that the substantial increase in salaries was a result of that uh, payment of other people rather than the owners actually taking excess draw out of it. So they had attempted to run it themselves and figure out how to sell the business themselves and have been doing that for a few years. And from looking at the numbers, it's cost them substantially. <laughs> yeah. What in, in your estimation now, now, have you done a normalization of, of the latest year showing what the, the outcome would be if there was an, an owner manager like, like the, the one who had passed away who could both oversee things and probably also handle sales for the major accounts. What, what would be the result under that kind of scenario? Uh, the result under that um, would be just about break even at their current sales level. Mm -hmm. right? And uh, so they finally made the decision to relieve some of the professional uh, sales and professional operating people uh, a couple of months ago and uh, now uh, the their their fiscal year end was uh, uh, September and so now uh, they're operating at roughly a break even for the last couple of months and I suspect in the next 12 months they can do that and so when you say they're operating at a break even is that with paying uh, a full-time wage to someone who is a general manager, even if it's a family member? Yes. Okay. So, you know, businesses in this category would be sold on multiples of discretionary earnings. And, and in a lot of my seminars, I talk about the difference between jobs, businesses, and hobbies. And this, this business very clearly back in 2012 was a business. There was a, a net income, a profit in excess of the wages that the owner would have earned for doing the work that he was doing in the business. And what it is now is it's a job, right? Because if someone were to, if I were the owner of this business today and I was doing everything that the owner of a business like this would do, I'd be able to take my wage and then there'd be nothing left. So I basically own a job and in a business like this in metal manufacturing, um, there's a lot of capital equipment. You've got notes here that the equipment on site was originally purchased for about a million dollars. And then you've had an appraisal done by someone who's, uh, who's qualified here, um, showing that the liquidation value of the equipment is about 260 and the fair market value is about 350, right? That's correct. 
Okay. So in a, in a business like this with a lot of capital equipment, we're, we're really at the, the top end of the small business valuation spectrum. So you'd be pushing around three times discretionary cash flow. And if that owner salary is about a hundred grand, what, what this is telling us is that this business is actually worth probably about, or maybe a little bit less than the value of the equipment there. So it, it, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. What, what this business is, is it's a great place for someone with expertise in this industry to build themselves their own new business on the bones of what was there before. Um, because it would certainly be easier to be successful if you took this over, but nobody's going to come on the scene and put up good money to acquire a cash flow because the cash flow isn't actually there, right? The, the money that this family has tied up in this machinery and equipment is actually not creating a return on their investment. So from the point of view of someone who's the owner manager, they're going to make a living here, but an investor putting money into acquire, this isn't going to get a return on investment. And so if I were in your shoes, if I were a broker trying to sell this thing, what I would first have to do is show the current owner, the, the, the widow, is that right? The widow is the owner now? That's correct. I would have to show the, the widow exactly what the nature of the situation is. And realizing that people out there with money who want to make an investment to see their money grow are going to be very, very cautious of this situation. This would scare them because we have a track record of declining sales, a track record of declining profits. And so the question will be, is this because of the situation in this particular company or is it because of the market they're in? Is it because of other more aggressive, more nimble competitors, right? And so the person who is going to want to take on this challenge is going to be the person who knows the industry, but maybe doesn't have a lot of money. Someone who has experience managing this kind of business, but they're not a wealthy business owner today. And so the question will be, how do we make this attractive to that kind of person? And uh, I've been in this position before as a broker trying to sell a business that's, that's on this kind of footing. And the timeline that she wants, she wants it sold right away within six months. The, the thing that is always the problem for someone trying to buy a business is getting the money. It's the same thing that's the problem for the car dealer trying to sell $40,000 cars. People generally these days don't have $40,000 sitting in their checking account. And so the car dealer knows that in order to sell $40,000 cars, he's got to figure out the, the money problem. And so when you go to the car dealer, he's already got that sorted out. He's got leases, he's got car loans, he's got different banks that are there ready to make a loan, right? And so in order to convince that person with management and sales experience in this industry that they should buy this business, we have to sort out the financing problem for that potential buyer. And it would be very difficult for anyone to take the financial statements of this business into a bank, right? And be able to get financing because the banker is going to be worried that they won't be able to get repaid if the trend continues, or even if the status quo remains constant. So this business, in order to be sold within six months, you're going to have to come up with a solution where a buyer can get a minimum down payment together, maybe through their savings or through refinancing their home, take that down payment, get control of the business. And, and so how is that going to be financed? It's going to be financed by the seller. And the biggest hurdle in your job is actually not going to be finding the buyer because there are plenty of people out there with experience in any industry that want an opportunity to succeed and become an entrepreneur and become a business owner. And so I don't think you're going to have trouble finding a candidate 
who's willing to do this, the hurdle is going to be convincing the widow that this is what she's going to have to agree to. Because she's looking for someone to write her a check. What, what's her idea of what this business is worth? Uh, the original numbers that she threw out was 500. And by the time we talked for a little while, then it come down to 400. And then in a most that this was prior to me meeting with her. And then when I met with her, uh, she's getting ever more urgent. And uh, I said, well, let me get the numbers. Show me, let me see all the numbers first, and then I'll give you an answer. And uh, then I got all the numbers and I've analyzed them or whatever. And what you've already observed in the comment you've made uh, is uh, now I'm going to have to meet with her and tell her the reality. And I'm uh, completely in line with you. I'm thinking two to $300,000 should be lucky to get that on terms. Yeah. What, what I think the, the positioning should be is that you should use that appraisal the $353,000 appraisal and say, here's an opportunity for you, Mr. Buyer, to come in and take over an established business and you can buy this for the value of our equipment. And just to make it easier for you to do that, we're going to finance this transaction for you. And, and I think that if you create an opportunity where the down payment could be fifty or seventy-five thousand dollars, with the balance paid out over the course of seven or eight years. I think you could have multiple people wanting this opportunity, and then it would be a matter of trying to figure out who would, in fact, be the best operator in order to secure that cash flow to make sure that the note will ultimately be paid. Would you have an interest uh, premium on the on the financing, or just pay it out interest free in seven eight years? I think that I think there should always be an interest rate, um, especially if you're going to present this to buyers as an opportunity. And and the reason why I say there should always be an interest rate is that a buyer could make a different offer. A buyer could make an offer with a zero percent note. That might happen. But then there's no incentive for the buyer to pay off the note earlier, right? And so the, the interest exists to be, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's rent on the money, basically, you know? And right. I, I would propose it to buyers in the same way that they're used to buying other things. In fact, I would probably present it with an interest rate similar to what's being advertised for home mortgages because it'll seem reasonable. And some of the buyers may not even question it. They may say, oh, that seems reasonable. And they may, you know, they may not even try to negotiate that point if they feel that it's already reasonable. And the, the key here is by making a reasonable presentation, you can get people in the door sooner. And if people don't have to try to obtain bank financing, that's what's going to allow the deal to actually close within the time frame that she wants. Um, the you know when I when I was doing business brokerage, I would have people that wanted to involve banks in making bank uh, business loans, um, and sometimes the bankers would add up to three months to the process. By the time they had gone back and forth and done all the things that they wanted to do. And then if the first banker said no, it always took a couple of weeks to say no. And then you start again with another right. banker, right? And the fastest deal I ever did was nine weeks and there was no banker, right? The, the buyer came to the table. And uh, in that situation, it was a retail store. And I believe the purchase price was about 140000 And the, the deal they struck was that the buyer would pay 100000 on closing and 40000 over a couple of years with interest. And then in the week before the sale, the buyer came to the seller and said, look, I don't want you to pay any of your bills this week. Um, I would like to pay them for you at the closing table. 
And so the day of the closing, the buyer and seller met at the lawyer's office a couple hours before the closing was supposed to happen. And the buyer used his credit card and paid almost $50,000 worth of payables on his credit card. And then he went down to the bank and got a draft for the balance of that down payment, that $100,000 down payment. And so he actually basically gave her 100,000 on closing not necessarily by writing her a check for 100 grand but by assuming liabilities paying them on his credit card and giving her the difference in cash it was the same thing to her because if she had received 100,000 she would have had to pay her payables with the money right and and because we were able to create this scenario where the bank wasn't involved from the day they met to the closing table was only 9 weeks and she was under the gun too, uh, because her, um, she was in a situation where she had this business and it was a good business, but her husband earned significantly more money and he was basically transferred to another city. And she of course wanted to be with him. So she wanted it to happen as soon as it could. Uh, this is an idea I want to bounce off you on the, in the, eyes of the seller they obviously have had this business for years and believe that their i'm going to call it their ugly duckling is still beautiful mm -hmm. all right because they put their entire life into this and therefore the quote unquote customer value even though they've been unprofitable and all of the other issues over the last years i don't know how valuable the customer value is but to have them sell the business as a quote-unquote asset-only sale, which is really what they're going to get, uh, structuring it such that there was a percentage of forward sales of all existing customers. I'm just going to pick a number, 3% uh, of forward sales. So in this particular case, that would be like a $24,000 bonus for X number of years going out. And the, the idea that I had was pay that and then have the buyer uh, not have to pay that if they paid off the note earlier. So it would be the structuring the total cost is one thing, but this is a matter of structuring it so that, hey, you're gonna be buying assets plus you're gonna be paying for percentage of forward sales for as long as you haven't paid off the entire note. Now they have a, a incentive to cash out earlier and the seller has a vision that say, gee, I'm getting paid for my equity in my customer relationships. You, you yeah, see what I'm saying there? I do, and, and you know, a, a buyer, my who's never bought a business before might say gee okay so that's the goodwill right i'm paying a percentage of the revenue from the existing clients because they acquired those clients so it's i'm paying goodwill there and then i'm buying all of the equipment right and so that person might might think hey this sounds like a good deal but here's where the thinking will go by the time closing day comes by the time closing day comes they'll have realized that the business is not making any money and that the business is ultimately going to close, which means the equipment is not actually worth fair market value. The equipment is worth liquidation value, right? And if the customer base were really worth anything, then that customer base would be providing enough sales for the company to be profitable. Because when we talk about the goodwill in a, in a business, the goodwill is, is literally the amount of money, which is the difference between the, the purchase price of the business, which is based on cash flow, and the tangible value of the assets. So if we had profitability in this business and somebody agreed to buy it for half a million dollars and we know there's $350,000 worth of stuff, the machinery, then the business would have $150,000 of goodwill is simply the difference. Because the customer base is insufficient to create that cash flow, there really isn't any goodwill here but it's still easier for somebody to buy this than to start from scratch, to, to wait for them to go out of business, buy their equipment at auction, and then try to 
reacquire the clients would be harder than simply agreeing to pay the market value of the equipment today, especially if the seller will facilitate the transaction through the financing, right? Because for, for most buyers, the hurdles, the down payment, the hurdles always getting the money and the down payment under a seller finance transaction here could conceivably be less than the amount of money you would have to bring to that auction in a year's time, right? Because the auctioneer doesn't finance anybody. The auctioneer is just cash, right? And on top of that, everyone else in this industry will be at the auction. So that opportunistic person with the experience and the desire, they're going to find it more compelling to do a deal with the seller. But by the if, if they agreed to buy the equipment at fair market value, and then they also agreed to this royalty arrangement, what, what I've seen happen before is by the time you get to the closing table, they've, they've reflected so much upon it that they're not going to want to close on that deal. They'll realize that they'll be paying too much. And, and paying too much will be an emotional conclusion regardless of what the total value of the deal was. Even if you, in this case, if you said, all right, we're going to do a $260,000 transaction and we're going to structure it this way. What you're saying is the emotional thought of paying for a non-existent goodwill is going to poison before closing. Yeah. So, so let's, let's examine this from a different point of view. Let's say that there's a very similar company two miles away. Okay. And instead of trying to sell this business, what we do is we go to that similar company and we say, Hey, would you like to take over our book of business? Now this other company doesn't need any of the equipment because they already have the equipment, right? If they're, if they're a competitor, those guys might be very open to an opportunity to pay a royalty. You could say, look, take over our customer list. We'd like 3% of whatever you sell to these guys for the next five years. They might be happy to do that because to them, it's incremental revenue. They'll be able to make a lot of profit off that incremental revenue because all their other bills are conceivably being paid by their current customers, right? And then you could turn around and call the auctioneer. So on top of that revenue, you're going to get the liquidation of the equipment, but the auctioneer isn't going to get the fair market value for the equipment. Probably going to get, well, he'll, he'll get by definition, he'll get less than the orderly liquidation value. He'll get forced liquidation value. So he won't even get the 260. He'll probably only get another, you know, maybe a hundred, 150 grand. And, but then right. the company, so when you take, if you took that strategy, so in presenting to the owner, if you may, or the seller, it is alternate A is if you could sell your list uh, and generate the numbers, you're going to generate 3%, let's say five years, 15% of the sales value. Plus, instead of getting an ordered liquidation value, you're going to get half the ordered liquidation value. So you're going to get about the same amount of money in either case. Uh, and, and the big difference, though? It, will be that the company's gone. And, right. and you know, in, in my experience, when you end up with these multi-generational family companies, whether they will, you know, they like to talk about how the legacy creates value. And, and I, I always try to explain, you know, the legacy doesn't create value. Customers and sales create value. Cash flow is what's valuable. But at the same time, they're also emotionally tied to that legacy. So the seller is probably going to prefer seeing someone else carry the legacy so that they can see that the business is carrying on. No, no one in this family is going to want to be known as the person who ended up closing up the you know, grandfather's business and, and selling things at auction. Right. Right. And so, you know, in your role, you know, a, sort of a plan B might be to look for similar companies who may want to acquire the customer list. That might be a plan B, but I think plan A, number one, is to, is to show them what they're going to have to do to make a sale happen. 
and make sure they pick the right operator who's going to buy this and be able to run it successfully. If the problem really is, um, you know, if the problem really is the competitive landscape has changed, other people are eating their lunch, the market has changed, the demand has declined, all those kinds of things, whether they run it to extinction or someone new does, it doesn't matter. And if they finance the transaction and the down payment is low enough that the buyer doesn't need to borrow from a bank to acquire this equipment, then they'll be the first position lien holder on it. So if the buyer fails, ultimately, then they're still going to end up in the same position. They can still auction off the equipment. Right. It, you know, either way you look at it, it's not fun. And one of the toughest things I always had to do when I was a broker and today when people who own businesses hire me to do valuations and to, and help set up these strategies when they're trying to sell on their own. Um, the hardest thing is showing them the reality of what the business is worth. worth. Cause as you know, Paul, the, the business owners are always tend to think it's worth far more than it really is. Right. That's correct. <laughs> and they, they underestimate the, uh, improvements that are necessary inside their operation, right? And uh, in this uh, illustration, there are a number of manufacturing improvements, I'm sure personnel change improvements, uh, work practice improvements, facility improvements, just in the discussion that we had and the questioning uh, that I made of her and her uh, inability to be enthusiastic with the answers points one to know sight unseen that uh, they've reached the point where they they can't put any more heart back into the business <laughs> mm. and and so when it's at that point uh, I think we have to do exactly what you're saying is accelerate uh, their understanding of uh, the situation they're in and it's not going to get better uh, unless somebody with great energy uh, comes back in and and even if the market sustained even if the sales volume customers sustained it still takes energy uh, of an owner in the heart of an owner in order to uh, survive now before I before I hit record when we were just chatting uh, in the beginning um, we talked a little bit about confidentiality in the sale and, you know, I always preach from the highest hilltop that when a small business is up for sale, it's got to be confidential. Um, if word gets out that a business is up for sale, the business can be destroyed. And then you, you had made the comment in this business, I think you said there were eight employees. Is that correct? Uh, that's right. Yeah. So, so it's a relatively small group of people and People in any industry, um, you know, the best workers that they have, if they get spooked, if they think that something's wrong, that they might lose their job, that the company's headed for the auctioneer, they've always got employment options because other people will know of them. You know, the, the, the people that work in a given industry, you know, they know each other because they, they run into each other at the bowling alley and at the bar and all these other places. And, and so the danger is losing the good workers and then you have a turnover problem and then that'll affect results as well. In my experience with a business like this, there will be employees who are doing their job and they, they are employees and they're employees in the minds of the owners, their, their subordinates. But then there are also likely employees that are kind of a, a whisper away from being friends, Right. So employees maybe that have been there for 20 years and they know the family, they've, they've been through ups and downs, they've, you know, experienced a lot of what the family has experienced in owning the business. And for those employees, what I, what I have found over time is that the owners will typically confide in them and, and tell them what's going on. 
and it can work to their advantage or not. Because when, when a buyer eventually comes along and wants to take a look at this business, the buyer will understand the confidentiality requirement. But after the buyer has looked at everything and analyzed everything, and they've come to the decision that they do wish to move forward and buy the business, most buyers will then want to talk with some of the key employees because employees are an important part of the transition for any buyer, right? I mean, one of the advantages of buying an existing business is that the employees know their jobs already. And so the buyer is going to be concerned that employees may want to leave or something. I always, I always used to tell buyers, like, don't be afraid employees are all going to quit because these people have bills to pay, right? They've got, they have a, a job because they, they've got expenses. Very few people can afford to quit on a whim, right? Because they've, they decided that they're fed up or they don't like the, the way the new owner looks or something like this. Um, and so who are the employees that are going to be trusted to actually talk with the buyer if the buyer insists before a closing happens? It's going to be those, those employees that the owner really trusts. So I think that you have to do everything you can to make sure that the sale does remain confidential and try to make sure that the buyer who ultimately says, yes, I want to move forward is one that the seller likes and believes in before they ever talk to one of those employees. Because the, the employee, you know, when they meet that potential buyer, that can seal the deal. Um, and, and I've seen that happen many times where the buyer talks to the key employee, they get along great, and the buyer's really happy, and the deal closes, and, and the, that employee is part of the transition, you know, helping the new owner run things. But here's the other thing that can happen. If the key employee meets a buyer and the deal doesn't work out, and then two months later, the key employee is meeting another buyer and the deal doesn't work out, what'll start to happen is, is a, a, a cloud of cynicism will evolve. And the, the employees will start to be like, oh, you know, here comes another, here comes another uh, buyer. And, and even though the, the trusted employee is sworn to secrecy, you know, don't tell anyone else that the business is for sale, it's impossible to keep secrets forever. And something will be said in passing. Someone will say something and assert, you know, that key employee who knows that the business is for sale and it doesn't go through a month later could say to someone, oh, you know, we probably won't bother fixing that given, given what might happen. And then another employee might interpret that to mean either the business is about to close or maybe it's going to be sold. And the number of times that I've had my clients who are sellers accuse me of breaking confidentiality, they'll say, you know, somebody heard my business was for sale. You can't maintain confidentiality like you promised. And when I investigate it, it turns out that the problem came from somewhere else. And it's usually either from within their, their own camp at the, at the business. And the second biggest place was at the bank. For some reason, secrets don't get kept at banks. <laughs> right. Well, it, it's interesting, uh, not only this situation, but others, uh, when you begin to talk about it in the industry that you may have some candidates, it's surprising how often they say, yeah, I know that company's for sale. Would it be this? Would it be this company? <laughs> and they're all they're all guessing. And what my concern, I, number one, with this particular seller, uh, I agree that uh, have to get a clear understanding of what they have to do on an accelerated basis to sell the business. Two, I think that they need to get engagement of the employees and an understanding that the transition can be successful with the potential buyers. And uh, because they they have to already know, all right. That I mean they've watched it, uh, people coming and going for some period of time, and uh, I don't know how you just like you point out. They say, well, keep this secret, keep this to yourself. Well, that isn't kept to yourself after a year, year and a half of <laughs> of a downtrend, right? And so, so they have been trying to sell it on their own for a while 
I guess that. Yes. So they have. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it, but it, they believe they they believe that they've been selling it quietly. Unfortunately, I happen to have known about it for two years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So and, and you it know hasn't some, been very quiet. Some of that rumor could be reflected in these financials. Absolutely. Absolutely. They, 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 they did some things like trying to sell it to their customers and some other crazy things. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's some challenges relative to that, but you know, obviously I'm under confidentiality, so I I'll honor uh, the agreements that I have, but, I think speed is of the essence in this particular situation. Have have they thought about any of the employees being potential buyers? Uh, they have not because they're not perceived as capable. Right. right. And And when they're thinking about somebody writing them a half million dollar check, it's easy to discount employees, but when you reframe their understanding and expectations and you realize we're actually looking for someone to write a $50,000 check, there could be some opportunities amongst the employees. I agree with that. I agree with that. And uh, as you identified early on in our conversation, getting clarity in the mind of the seller uh, and uh, acceptance of the realities uh, will be the first step. Uh, a failure to do that will will be a disaster for all. But if in fact that acceptance there, willingness to finance, willingness to be uh, fair in the price, uh, then uh, going after those particular candidates, whether it's uh, somebody that wants to uh, take it over and run it or somebody inside that wants to be part of that or could be part of it with a new owner since they have all of the, the internal knowledge, uh, mm-hmm. are, all op- are all options that could be assembled and created. What, what is your arrangement with the seller? Are you under a, a, a program where you're going to be paid a commission when the business is sold? Yes, I'm commission transaction fee. Okay. So one of the things that, uh, that and, and I've got a video on YouTube called My Life as a Business Broker. And so I get, I get calls on clarity all the time from people who are getting into the industry and they'll call me up and they'll go, Oh, I wish I'd seen your video before I signed that, that paper. <laughs> and, and, uh-huh. and they're looking, they're looking for advice to make sure that they have a successful career. And one of the things that I, that I've repeated to many of them is if you can list a business for sale that has a really great discretionary cash flow, like 150,000 or more, that is open from Monday to Friday from nine to five. You'll sell that business. You'll sell as many of them as you can get your hands on. You'll sell, right? Because all the people out there who are professional people who've had high income, who've been able to save money, who want to go out on their own, that's the business they want. They want to earn a good amount of money, but they only want to work Monday to Friday from nine to five because they want to go boating or play golf on the weekends, right? All the other businesses that fall outside of that definition, right? you got to be careful with them because you can invest a lot of your time into something that no one's going to want to buy. And so, and, and I learned my lesson when I listed the bouncy castle business for sale and the bouncy castle business was a great business. It was a part-time business and a family was running this business while they had full-time jobs. And it was like a weekend enterprise that gave them extra money. And uh, everyone was excited and interested in the bouncy castle business because everybody likes smiling, happy children, right? And that's what you think about when you think about a bouncy castle. But they all soon realized that if they bought the bouncy castle business, they would never have a free weekend in the summer. And so it was, it was the lifestyle constraint that prevented me from selling that business to anybody. Ultimately, I lucked out because I found someone who was looking for a specific family circumstance that fit with that business. So my warning to you is that if the seller will not agree with you 
as to what the value of this is and what the terms of sale are going to be, you may not want to carry on with this assignment. Because when I was starting off as a business broker, I was told, you got to take every listing you can to fill your book and then become selective. And I just, I know now that I've got thousands of hours behind me of work that I was never paid for and I never will be paid for because I took on businesses and tried to sell them that weren't unsellable. So you need to make sure that the the seller agrees that this is the situation they're in and these are what the terms of sale are going to be because if they insist that they want that big check, it's just not going to happen or the chances of it happening are, are so slim. Um, and then the second thing that, that is important is if somebody buys this thing and they only put $50,000 down, how does that then reflect upon your payment, your commission? And uh, I don't know if you have or not, but I've got a, a, a thing, out, a special report called How to Borrow Money from Your Business Broker, where I discuss several deals that I did while I was a broker where I ended up getting paid with a note. So the seller ended up getting paid over time and so did I. And that was one of the ways I was able to make it palatable to the seller. Because if this seller, for example, um, if they're going to take 50,000 on closing and then they're going to owe you 30 grand, let's say, well, then they're left with 20. But if you say, look, here's the situation you're in, and I realize it's not very palatable, here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to, and you can structure it a number of different ways, but if you're also willing to be paid over time, it can make it an easier thing for them to accept. All right. Well, that's good. That's a good advice. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, all right. So. The other thing you wanted, you put in your email to me was just to, to talk about sort of the, the Amazon economy and how things are changing. Um, wh- what did you mean by that, I guess, first of all? And, and how do you see that playing out in the example we've been talking about, about this metal company? Well, here's my observations. Uh, the, everybody is familiar with what I'm going to call the Amazon-like business model. Uh, the the precursor to that was the uh, Walmart business model. And I describe Walmart business model as a business model where Sam Walton got everybody else to finance his inventory and basically didn't buy anything until it was sold and then paid the person that provided him the goods. And then he bought the real estate in order to house the transactions. Walmart then moved to something even more dramatic, that is uh, uh, getting the customer to pay up front and then move to a financed inventory model without having quote unquote real estate, but trying to shorten the supply chain to uh, let electronics uh, and systems uh, deliver products from people that manufacture or want to hold it in a warehouse or the sorts on their own dime and then provide it to the customer and then just accelerating that uh, process. So these are models, if you may, of accelerating the supply chain or the cash to cash conversion. And as I've looked at businesses uh, struggling over the last 10 years of every type, I always tend to look at it is how fast is that cycle of their cash to cash conversion? And is there some part of their business that could be accelerated? And take manufacturing, for example. Are there some products or services in a typical, let's call it metal manufacturing business, that could be put into products and then put into an e-commerce type platform? Or are there services that could be offered in e-commerce? The very model you're talking about, about selling consulting advice by the minute is expert advisory by the minute. Is uh, There's no cost incurred until the advisor shows up and the advisor's already been paid 
by the minute for the prescribed minutes ahead. Applying that kind of thinking to existing businesses, I think is essential for them going forward as they struggle to keep their brick and mortar and practical business. So I'm looking for models or ways where people could add this into their business or add that kind of thinking into their business and take advantage of their intellectual property, their knowledge, their manufacturing capacities, distribution, whatever they may have as their value and move it into an Amazon-like model. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, and 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 what you're what you're talking about, I mean this this trend, you know, you you mentioned it with Walmart how they were getting the supplier to finance the inventory and they were owning the real estate and then they realized, "Hey, we shouldn't own the real estate, right? We should we can grow faster if we get other people to supply our buildings too." Right? What it is and what big businesses do is they're constantly trying to figure out how can we make the same money with less money invested? It's how can we get a bigger return on a smaller amount of capital? And small business owners don't think like this at all. At all. Small business owners actually get excited when they pay down debt and they have more equity on their balance sheet and they think, hey, I'm paying off the bank. You know, I own more of the business. And if you have more equity in the business without increasing the earnings, you're actually earning a lower rate of return on your equity right? Which, which would make, you know, Wall Street types lose their jobs. <laughs> but in, in right. small business, people don't think this way, right? And so I 100% agree with you. Um, my, my, uh, my video actually that was released an hour ago, because I'm talking to you Friday morning, was my, my 2017 Santa's wish list for small business owners. And the very first item on the list is how to how can we run this business with less of our own money, right? And it's funny I was talking with some people who are buying a business in Florida, and we're looking at the numbers and the 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 deal looks good, the price is reasonable, it doesn't look like the bookkeeping errors and all that other stuff are are too bad, you know, and nothing's perfect in a small business. And then they said, let's just step back. And think big picture, long term. Is there anything that we're not thinking about that could hurt this business? And the first question that I asked was, "Would a robot be able to do this?" And and it's funny, right? But we're moving into the Jetsons world, and you know, pretty soon cars are everywhere, are going to be driving themselves and trucks, and I. Someone that ran into yesterday at the gym mentioned they saw a YouTube clip of a robot in a Chicago hotel that delivers room service, right? And so automation, robots, all this stuff is coming at us. And I think it's coming at us fast enough that someone buying a business today would have to think, how will robots affect this business? In the metalworking business we're just talking about, you know, we know in manufacturing there's room for automation, right? For a long time, there's been increasing automation in, in manufacturing. But the business in Florida, uh, they sold equipment. And, and I said, you know what? It could very well be that robots will start doing the work that this equipment does. But their business in particular, I said, you know what? You could probably be selling that ro those robots. So the business probably could profit from this increasing automation as your customers want to move to the, the automated systems. Um, and so when you talk about Amazon, what you're, to me, what that you're talking about is having a greater and greater understanding of the desires and purchasing behavior of your customers. And I talked a little while ago with a fellow in the UK named Clinton I think it was Clinton Smith, and he buys online businesses, websites and things. And he was telling me that he actually discounts any of the traffic or sales that come from things like search engines because he said you can't trust them. You can't trust the search engines. They could change their algorithm and you could lose the traffic immediately. But what he really looks for is sales that come from lists, particularly lists where people have opted in. 
because what you've got is you've got an audience that is interested in the subject matter. And the ultimate goal is to find two different companies that are similar enough that the same customers from each company would want to buy the other company's things. Then you can leverage the two lists. Um, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about because that list is, is people who have self-identified as wanting a certain thing, just like Amazon, you know, looks at the books I bought and starts sending me recommendations based on what they think I might want to buy. Right. And I would agree with you, Paul, that, you know, I, I did a consultation with an accountant about a month ago and he wants, he, he, his dilemma is he says, I got the same accounting business that every other accountant has, and I want to be different. I want to be stickier. I want people to, to stay closer to me. And my suggestion was that we start asking a series of questions to his clients to find out what kinds of things they want. And then he called me the next day and said he, he didn't even have a list of their email addresses. So, you know, right there, huge blind spot right in the middle of his business. He, he wasn't able to communicate with his own clientele, you know, with, with MailChimp or something. I, 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 I just thought it was crazy. I mean, he's, he's acting on it now, but, but until the moment came where I said, well, let's just talk to your customers. He didn't even realize that he isn't able to talk to his customers. You know, your uh, observations uh, are, are what has driven me recently to look at this and try to describe it, because I would say 90% of the people I talk with are in that situation of that, that accountant, right? I mean, a friend of mine I've known for 50 years as a CPA, and I met him at a meeting, and he's been trying to sell his business for a long period of time. And I proposed to him uh, similar things. And and he has does not have, even though he's done business with these people for 50 years, does not have a relationship with them. If you look at the typical manufacturing company in any supply chain, they keep taking orders. But when you ask them, what is their sales relationship or when do they communicate with their customers? They, they don't. They only mm -hmm. communicate when there's a request for quote. And uh, with that, I think these companies are all destined for the, uh, the curb because when you cease to have any kind of a relationship, you really don't have anything uh, of value to bring to the customers and then you're going to be losing it. And that's kind of the message that I want to figure out how to package A and number two, how to help people transition it, much like you're giving advice along that line to your CPA a friend yeah. and, and others. It's, it's funny. There was a, there was a question the other day about brand uh, on, uh, on Quora. Uh, I sometimes go onto Quora.com and answer questions for people. And um, someone was saying, can I have a business without a brand? And the answer is, of course you can. It's called being a grain farmer, right? You're producing a commodity. You don't have any control over the price. You have to take whatever price is being offered because your product is the same as everyone else's. And you don't have any way of making people want your grain over your neighbors, right? And so these businesses, whether they're in manufacturing or whatever industry, if, if they don't have a story and a relationship, they might have a sign and a logo, but they, they, they don't, they're becoming commoditized. And, and eventually what happens is it's just about price. And if it's just about price, it means whoever has the lowest cost structure is going to be the last man standing, which means you're likely talking about, you know, the Chinese or, or, or someone in a developing country, right? They're going to end up with a lower cost structure. And so, um, you know, yeah, I, I think that it's a, it's a, it's definitely a pursuit that's worthwhile because, um, and it also creates an opportunity because if somebody is listening to us in this conversation and they have expertise in a certain field in a certain industry, like in metalworking, you know, this is the kind of business where you can really create value. 
Because if you can come in here and you at least know that you're going to be able to write your own paycheck, right? And then you start to implement some of the things we're talking about and you start to implement real relationship management and you start to understand what the customers want and you start to understand where the customers are headed, right? You know, selling somebody widgets today is great. But if, if you don't know that they're planning to, uh, you know, to, to get into the boogie wheel business, then you're not ready to supply them with boogie wheels. Right. Now, I, I think it's essential and uh, for people to reestablish if they uh, have weak supply chain relationships, uh, reestablish connection with their employees, reestablish connection with their suppliers, and reestablish connection with their customers, and getting all of them in the conversation. And it's a remarkable, if you've got those three at the table and just get the conversation started, you will uncover the very thing that you're talking about is what are the needs that are going unfilled? Where's the value proposition? And where does the customer think you're wasting your time? Mm -hmm. And boy, if the employees knew that and your suppliers knew that, the customer would benefit and be loyal long term. <laughs> That's true. All right, Paul, I got to get ready for my next call. Uh, I've had an amazing talk. Very good. Thank you so much. Um, I'm I'm going to release this conversation right away, which means that if somebody listens to this, there are still some spots left. There's a limited number of these holiday chat spots. Um, but if somebody else wants to have a call, just like Paul did, um, just below in the notes, whether you're listening on SoundCloud or iTunes or YouTube, you'll find the link where you can register yourself as well. But with that, Paul, thank you very much and best of luck with this client. Let me know how it turns out. Very good. Thank you, David. All right. Bye-bye.